You're listening to TIP. On today's show, I sit down with Darren Sager to talk about his journey into real estate investing and how he has looked at it through the lens of an agent. Darren is a successful real estate investor himself and also a leading real estate agent in the New Jersey and New York City areas. We talk about whether you need a real estate license or not to be a successful real estate investor from the perspective of someone who is both an agent and an investor. We talk about why you should invest around train stations, but not necessarily bus stations, and how you can be successful investing even in expensive markets like Darren's in New Jersey and New York City. Without further delay, let's bring Darren into the show. You're listening to Real Estate Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Hey, everyone. Welcome to today's show. I'm your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I have Darren Sager. Welcome to the show, Darren. Robert, thanks for having me. Let's start with your background, your story. Walk us through where you started and where you're at today. I've primarily been a real estate investor for most of my life, more than 20 years now. Started back in 1997. Went to work in Deloitte in their real estate practice group and learned how to purchase properties with them. Vornado Realty Trust was my primary client. I was there when they brought Michael Facitelli on board. The first purchase we ever worked on, at least when I was there, was buying the merchandise mart from the Kennedy family which was the Kennedy family's literally their crown jewel property that they held. So I learned basically very, very quickly how to purchase real estate. From there, I went on to buy my first small multifamily and one thing led to another. I was living for free and then could buy another one and live somewhere else for free and kind of snowballed. It's a great experience being a real estate investor for sure. And so your first deal was a house hack? Yeah, it was a house hack. Obviously at the time it wasn't called a house hack. I called it landlord light because you only had to deal with one tenant. <laughs> so, but obviously you had the issues of them being able to knock on your door. But yeah, so I started off with a side-by-side duplex in Maplewood, New Jersey. My primary reason of buying it really was I graduated from college later on in life than most people. And I was 27 years old when I graduated and a bunch of my friends were getting married and buying houses and Deloitte was only paying me 40 grand a year. So I couldn't afford to go out and buy a single family home, which most people consider the American dream, but figured out a way that I can do it by buying a two-family home. When was that again? That was late 90s, early 2000s? Yeah, that was literally, we found the property in 1997. And it didn't close until 98 because there was a problem tenant in there. So that was definitely, like you said, where the term house hack was created. Oh, Oh, without a doubt. Yes. So who came up with that? Was it Brandon Turner came up with house hacking? I think so. So did you stumble into that house hack or was it something that you intentionally went into knowing that I'm going to use this as a quote unquote house hack? Again, I really went into it with the fact that this was going to be the only way that I could afford a home. So I didn't go into it with the idea that I wanted to be a landlord or thinking that I'm going to be a real estate investor. I guess I was trying to play catch up compared to other people at that point in their lives. It was the only way I can get into a home. But what wound up happening was just a couple years later, I'm there living for free. And everything that I'm earning through my W-2 job, I'm keeping. And I'm just like, oh, wow, this is pretty incredible. And then you kind of realize, wow, like one side of this home now is paying for everything regarding this house. 
And now it's even starting to pay for my utilities on my side. So if I rent out the side that I'm on, even though the prices of the homes have gone up, I can still go live in another two-family home, have this side that I'm living in right now help pay for the two-family home, and literally have two units now, per se, that would pay for the other house. So it kind of snowballs. You're just like, hmm, this is pretty cool. So yeah, no complaints. Real estate investing, I always say, has been very good to me. I stumbled into real estate the same way. My first deal was a house hack. It was going to house hack at the time, but I didn't know what house hacking was. I had bought in a small condo that had two bedrooms in it, and I'd lived there for like three or four months. And then I realized I didn't even open the door to the second bedroom the whole time I lived there. I was like, well, I should probably do something with this. And so I ended up renting it out. It covered 70% or 80% of my mortgage. I was like, this is pretty awesome. And then later I found out that that was a strategy called real estate investing and scaled since then. But where did you go from the house hack? What did your next couple properties look like? I've tried to be consistent in what it was that I bought. I always try to stay near train stations in New Jersey with direct access into Manhattan. So going from one to another. And eventually now I live in a single family house, but that's paid for by all my rental units. So we're still living for free. And most people say, don't go into a single family house. But I think having a single family house is fine if it's being paid for by a whole bunch of rentals. But yeah, I mean, it's going from consistently finding good opportunities near train stations. Because my thought process was that people who need access in and out of Manhattan for their jobs, you'll always have a good tenant pool for that. If you can provide them with like under a 10 minute walk to a train station, there are always going to be people looking for that. And over the last 20 years, it's just increased dramatically. And so do you only invest in this local area? No, actually, at this point now, we also are investing in larger syndications and actually raising capital for larger syndications out in Phoenix. And that's a different business model. Obviously, you know, those are what they really are is long-term flip projects on an apartment complex. And there's a lot of tax advantages for real estate investors that come along with it. In fact, I wish I did it sooner because of something called a cost segregation study. And it just saves you a ton of money, turns basically ordinary income into long-term capital gains. And you could do a whole podcast just on that. Yeah, I was going to say it must be a tax advantage because it's not under a year and you're holding it for more than a year, right? And that makes it capital gains. Well, a little bit different. So when a cost segregation study is generally speaking on our small multifamily homes, we do straight line depreciation over 27 and a half years, right? On the larger stuff with the Trump tax plan that came into effect, it's allowed more, but they actually go and depreciate based upon the actual useful life of something. So in the first year or let's say two years of one of these assets, when you do the study, you wind up having this mammoth amount of a paper loss that you can then go and have it go against your ordinary income on your other rentals. So let's say I went and put like $100,000 into a syndication, obviously with the right syndicator, I'm not telling you who you should do it with, but generally speaking, you're going to get a K-1 return and on it, you're going to get a paper loss. And the paper loss could be $60,000. But you're not actually losing that money per se. That's literally them taking all that depreciation in that first year, which you can then apply against all your other rentals that you wind up having. Now, eventually, although you took that as a paper loss, that ordinary income, when they go to sell the asset, right, three to five years later after they've increased the value of it, you're going to have to pay a tax on that gain. But the difference is the fact that that $60,000 that you had a paper loss now is a long-term capital gain for you, which is generally either 15 or 20% based upon your tax bracket. 
but it's not going to be taxed at your ordinary income tax rate, which is an incredible savings. So I wish I had been doing those sooner, but I didn't. And so how does depreciation recapture play into that? In what effect? So those people that are getting the K-1, they're going to have that paper loss, right, of say $60,000. When that property gets sold, they're going to be responsible for the depreciation recapture? So you basically are going to have a capital gain at basically a lower amount. So let's say, again, you put $100,000 in, you took the hit of $60,000, then your gain is basically going to be from that $40,000 up on how you get your money back. But again, in the tax rate that you're paying, though, on that the difference of the $60,000 is going to be basically, most people playing in this space are probably going to be at a 20% rate but it's going to be much better than a 28% or whatever rate that you may be playing in. So, And you're also then putting off paying that taxes for that time period as well. So you get to pay it off at a later date and also pay a lower amount. So there's two advantages to it. Even if it was just you paying it the same amount later on and deferring it, just from inflation, you're paying less. But now you're literally paying a lesser rate at a later period of time. So it just works out. Are you the GP on all these deals or are you investing as a passive investor? I do a combination of both. So I don't actually like run this syndication, but I do capital raise for some, which then puts us on the general partnership. But I also put my own money in as well, because again, it's the tax advantages are incredible and returns can be phenomenal if it's with the right person. So if the deal is right. Are you running the other business model that we talked about, the smaller units near the train stations in New Jersey, are you running that simultaneously while you're also doing these syndications? Yeah. We just, myself and a partner just purchased a two-family home in South Orange, New Jersey. We're completely gutting the home, putting a quarter million dollars into the rehab project on it. Paid around five sixty for it, and we hope to get about $4,000 a unit when we're done. Yeah, no complaints. We like to play in kind of the higher rent space could be a lot of fun. You don't need that many when you have obviously higher rents. It's interesting because people that are in the syndication space, they're not usually interested in the smaller unit type stuff. At least from people that I've talked to, it's either you do the small units until you get to syndication. Once you're into syndication, it's kind of like a no going back point for at least a lot of people. That's what I've seen. So it's really interesting to hear that you're doing both and that you could still be successful doing both, even though you've gone to a syndication. It seems like it's all one or the other. It's not. And I think people that are listening are going to be able to get value from that because they can invest passively some of their money if they want in a syndication, but still do some of their own active deals. And I don't think you hear that advice very frequently. Well, again, I guess it really depends upon the person. Kind of the philosophy, never forget where you came from, right? If you know a business model very, very well, you should always continue to do so because you always make money at it. Again, I wish I'd known about the syndication model earlier. I'd known about it, but I didn't take advantage of it. Because to me, I'm very conservative when it comes to my real estate investing. My philosophy was always that I wanted it in my back door. Every single property that we have is under a half hour drive away. So for me then to say, okay, I'm going to go now invest in Phoenix. And for me to get there, obviously it's a five, six hour flight. You have to have trustworthy boots on the ground to have a business partner to be able to do something like that who's there full time. Otherwise, I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't just go willy-nilly and invest with a mammoth syndicator who's doing deals everywhere. I want to put my money with someone that I do trust and know who's actually there physically, can be on-site at any moment in time to make it worthwhile. You mentioned that you're playing in the more high rental space in New Jersey. 
And then you just said you were conservative. So I'm, I'm interested to hear more about how you could be a conservative investor, but still go at the luxury side of units. Yeah, it's kind of interesting you say that because it raises eyebrows when I tell people three, $4,000 a month in rent, because obviously around the country, some people are paying 8000 1200 $1,500 as average rents. You know, for a three bedroom unit near a train station in New Jersey, in under a half hour, those are like three, $4,000 is an average rent. So to other people, it may seem really high, but it's not. If you wanted to get into the really high end rentals in New Jersey, then it's going to be like eight, nine, ten thousand $10,000 a month for a lot of these places. I wouldn't play in that. The rentals we like to play are basically B market rentals not a class. So I'm not in like the Hoboken market or anything else like that, basically sitting right on top of the city. And because you need millions of dollars to be able to do something like that. And that's never been my model. So it is high rents, but it's not high for the area. So on an average across the country, it's high, but not necessarily for the area. And so do you think that's protecting you if we have a downturn coming? Do you think because you're still in the middle of the market, at least locally, you're going to be protected if we see a recession coming? Yeah, because I would say that during the last crash, our rents actually went up dramatically. So most people were like, they actually get afraid. But the issue was that so many people were actually losing their homes that the rental demand went up. So I know a lot of people are worried in some way, shape or form about a crash. But New Jersey, at least the northern New Jersey market that we play in, has been a saturated market for greater than 60 years. We don't have the ability to add inventory very, very easily. And because of zoning, because of left-wing political aspect, they love their zoning laws. They hate change. So it's not like where you can be in Texas and say, okay, you can put up a 30-story building next to someone's $2 million house. You, you could do anything pretty much. There's no zoning in Texas. You invest in Texas, right? I do. It's a lot different. There's all rules about what you can do in what part of each town, and you have to abide by those rules because going for a variance is, oh my God, you don't want to go for variances. You're right outside a big city, like you said, a 30-minute train ride. Did you find that during the last recession, because you were right outside a major city, that a lot of people couldn't afford to live in the city anymore, so they were starting to migrate to the suburbs and that raised the demand? Correct. It's interesting. So people across the country, whether it's New York City or other big cities, I'm from Boston, so people outside Boston can probably do something similar, or just across the country for any big city. Absolutely, yeah. So they're going to move out of the city because they're going to try to cut costs, but they may still need to be able to have access into the city. And that's why if you go around northern New Jersey right now, the amount of building and development that's going on with large multifamily near train stations is through the roof. And the reason for that is because we talk for an hour about what's going on with the train line in and out of New York from New Jersey, something called the Gateway Project that was actually started by the Christie administration, which was a play on the ARC project, which was started by the Corzine administration before him. So that's been going on for quite some time. And what it basically is in a very short period of time is the primary tunnel that goes in and out of New Jersey. There's two of them, one in, one out into Midtown Manhattan was built over 100 years ago and it's breaking down. And during Superstorm Sandy, it got flooded. So it's breaking down even more so. So they have to rebuild the tunnels. So when they rebuild the tunnels, they're going to be actually going to be adding two additional tunnels. So they're going to build two new tunnels, one in, one out, and then go back to the old tunnels and rebuild those. And what it's going to do is it's going to create more throughput, obviously, if you double the number of trains in and out. 
New Jersey is going to benefit from being able to put more trains in and out of Midtown Manhattan than any other location in the New York metropolitan area. So that's why all these big guys are coming in to northern New Jersey, putting up all these massive apartment complexes right next to train stations because they know that the amount of trains going in and out is just going to increase over time. And it's going to be very, very easy for people to get into their jobs. And, and where are they going in? They're basically going in right to the new Penn Station, which is, they're working on right now, which is right underneath the Hudson Yards project, which is the largest real estate project uh, development in all of North America. And from what I understand, there's more office space being built there than like the 15th largest city in the United States. So who's going to have the easiest access to it? New Jersey. That's why I'm like super bullish on investing in New Jersey, despite the fact that we're also out in Phoenix. It's like, why are we still buying there? Because long term, the aspects of it, I feel, are incredible. And obviously, the larger development guys think the same way. So I know you're not building the really big buildings where those train stations are going. I can't afford it unless anyone wants to go and fund me. I'll find a location to do it. Anyone out there with deep pockets that has hundreds of millions of dollars, we could find a way to build 400 units. Happy to do it. Do you think what they're building is risky? Because what I'm hearing, I mean, it definitely sounds like a good opportunity, but it almost sounds like speculation. What if something happens with that train project and it doesn't actually go through? Then they're owning these assets that their main thesis is gone. The project is not if it's going to go through because they literally have no choice but to do it. So the Obama administration agreed to fund the project. Trump came in and he thought he had a good deal. So he basically is kind of like pushed it to the side, but the project is still moving forward, just slower. So it's not if, but when it's going to happen. That's why the big guys are still out there building. But are they speculating? I don't think they're speculating. You know, there's a demand for housing in northern New Jersey. And obviously, the job growth rate in New York is steady, and people always want to be in New York. It's one of the best cities in the world. And now attracting a lot of tech jobs. Obviously, we know about the fiasco with AOC and Amazon. But look, Amazon just came in and decided now to get space in Hudson Yards. So they're putting uh, God knows how many jobs there. So things are happening there. And northern New Jersey is really going to benefit from it. I think, again, once when all this is done, you're going to see the property values in northern New Jersey go up like they did in Brooklyn and other places. And northern New Jersey will really become kind of like the sixth borough of New York. That's really interesting. I don't usually invest local where I live. We talked about this before the show. I invest mostly in Texas, but they're doing a train project right down the street from where I live. And I live in the greater Boston area. There's a train going into Boston and they're about doubling the length. So anything a little bit north of where the train already exists is probably going to benefit from something similar to what you're saying. So it sounds like it might be something that I need to look into. Probably should. There's always a cost benefit though, as to how far they go and they run the train line. Because obviously the further you go out, the longer the train ride that someone has into the city. And as you go out further too, the cost of the train ticket goes up. So if you don't necessarily, at least for me, you don't want to go 45 minutes beyond 45 minutes because again, the cost of that ticket is going up. So your rents have to go down because of the cost of the ticket going up. And then your rents also have to go down because of the fact that the person has a longer amount of time that they have to spend on the train. So there's really kind of like a sweet spot that we found. And that's why we try to keep under a 45 minute ride into New York. Do you do any investing around bus stations? No, but it doesn't mean that you can make a lot of money doing it. But for me personally, no, I'm not a big fan of buses. Why? Because 
The whole reason why I bought my first place near the train station was I was taking a bus from my mother's house up in Bergen County, New Jersey, into the New York City. It was taking me an hour and a half. And why would I always get stuck sitting next to the big fat guy and being squished in my seat? And the bus would break down. So you're from the Boston or New Hampshire area. There's a lot of snow. And what happens when it snows? You know, there's an accident. And then you're just sitting on the, the bus longer. What I like about the train, it's consistent. It's really not affected all that much by weather. And I would say the overall cost of taking the train is higher than it is the bus. So then you also wind up finding a higher quality tenant because, again, they have a higher standard themselves. And that's why I've kind of stuck around train stations. But doesn't mean you can't make a ton of money at real estate investing your bus stops. So I would say, yeah, I mean, if you have a house that the bus stops like right across the street, it's great because on a cold day, they can see the bus coming and just like only stand outside for 30 seconds. That's awesome. And I guess when I think about a bus, I don't mean a bus that runs around a small metropolitan area, right? That goes around a couple blocks in New York, more like a commuter bus, right? So that's really big where I am. We don't have trains like New York. We have like a Greyhound, if you will. Let's transition. I know you're a real estate agent as well. You have your license. Let's talk about that side of your business as well. What's going on there? Well, I got my license basically because being a real estate investor, I felt that there was no agent that really understood what it was I was trying to do. And most real estate agents aren't investors themselves. You know, they'll sell properties and they'll take you to ones, but they would never take me to the ones that like I had very specific things that I was looking for in an investment property. So I got my license to be able to access the MLS and find properties for myself. But it was a friend of mine who said, you should be working with other real estate investors. I'm like, why would I do that? It wasn't why I got my license. He goes, well, you think you're the only one out there that feels the way you did? And so he's like, yeah, you should just go work with some other real estate investors, help them too. So I did, started networking with some other real estate investors, and I literally built up a business over the last 12 years on working with real estate investors. So are you acting or practicing as an active agent today? Absolutely. Been very, very good. So I'm with uh, eXp Realty. eXp is a cloud-based agent-owned or publicly traded real estate brokerage. I've been with them for 28 months. Prior to that, I was with Keller for about eight years and before that, Weikert. And the move to eXp is probably the best thing I ever did with my real estate license because I can make money there in ways that I never could with the other brokerages. And what are those ways? Well, eXp kind of allows me to act like a broker without having the risk of being a broker. Because as agents, you know, you always want to come across someone who wants to get their real estate license and you're like, how do you like where you are? And you're like, oh, this is great. So if you bring in someone just like Keller's model to eXp, you're going to get a referral, if you want to say, commission on their business. So, which is really fantastic. But the biggest part to me was really the equity portion of it. When I was at Keller, and that was really the reason why I left, Keller is a privately owned company. Gary Keller is a billionaire. He's kept basically the ownership to himself and his investors and never opened it up to the agents, and I don't think he ever will. But eXp said that we're going to give all our agents the ability to earn a stock. It's publicly traded. We're on the NASDAQ. At the time that I found the company, it was a penny stock. They've basically, well, with this whole coronavirus thing, my equity goes up and down based upon the stock price. But it's literally tens of thousands of dollars, north of $50,000 with the stock value price now because of all the recent drops. But still, it's more than I would have ever gotten anywhere else, which is just amazing. And it's kind of funny, you know, you're sitting there across from me, you have a Berkshire Hathaway shareholder jacket on. And obviously, we know Berkshire Hathaway Home Services as a real estate brokerage, and they don't offer an equity program to their agents. And they could, 
but they don't. And Remax doesn't. I don't think Colwell Banker or Century 21 through uh, Realogy, they don't offer equity programs to their agents, but EXP does, which is pretty freaking awesome. That's pretty incredible. I'm a big stock investor. That's kind of my background. Before I got into real estate, I was mostly in stocks. I still do a lot of stock investing. I have a second show, Millennial Investing, that's all about stock investing. So I'm really interested by that. I've never heard of a model where the agents can earn equity in the company that they work for. I mean, we've got a stock purchase plan. Like, If you could go out and get shares in Berkshire Hathaway at a 10% discount, would you take it? Of course you would, right? So uh, EXP literally allows us to take 5% of our commissions and purchase the company stock at a 10% discount with every single closing that we have. And is it a discount on what it's trading for at that day? Yep. So it's instant equity, just like that. And you could just go turn around, sell it. 10% discount is like 11.4% gain on your money instantaneously. So why wouldn't you take it? It's free money. So on top of that, they have all different ways of us getting stock awards in the company. So when you come into EXP, you do your very first deal, you get a stock award. When you cap, and what I mean by capping is when you do a certain level of production at EXP, you then move to a 100% commission model, that's a small transaction fee. But when you do hit that cap, they give you another stock award. If you do a certain amount of production after you cap, you will actually get your cap back in stock, which is just amazing. That happened to me for 2019. So my $16,000 cap, I literally got back. It's called an Icon Award. So I got my $16,000 cap back in company stock, which is just amazing. So they really want to create partnerships with their agents. They just don't want them out there being just a sales treadmill per se, because that's how every other brokerage works, right? They're trying to give you sales systems that will help you sell more. And the reason why is because it makes more money for them. But they never talk about you coming in here and how are you going to get to retirement? They never talk about that. EXP, we talk about that. What is your exit strategy at the end of the day? These are common things that we talk about. Because we're building equity, because we're getting revenue share, EXP is amazing. Glenn Sanford has a philosophy that's called the 50-50 initiative because we're agent-owned. He's literally said that 50% of the revenues of the company that come in go back to the agents in the form of revenue share. So regardless of the business, that model that we have, not just in real estate sales, but there's ancillary businesses with mortgage, title, and let's say moving services, wherever it else that we can generate money from, 50% of that revenue goes back to the agents, which is just phenomenal. And no one else is doing this. When I was at Weikert, Weikert had a title company, they had mortgage, they had moving. And did Jim Weikert share any of that with us agents? Of course not, right? And he flies around in his helicopter and, and everything, and that's great. But EXP said, why don't we share this with everybody? Make everyone an owner. As a stock and real estate investor, it's really, really interesting to me. And I haven't mentioned this to you yet, but I actually have my license as well. I don't practice by any means and I don't really have a plan to. I just have it for investing purposes. I like to get referral commissions. If I know anybody that's buying a property, I can refer them. I also sit on the board of a local real estate company up where I live in the Boston area. I'm going to bring that idea to them and we're going to talk about it because I know the CEO of the company, I know his philosophy and I know he would like that type of strategy. It's not publicly traded by any means, but it's something you could probably implement still at this company. Yeah. So EXP, it literally has what's something called a brokered by EXP model. So let's say an independent brokerage or boutique brokerage could literally go plug into EXP's business model and still keep their brand that they've developed over 50, 60 years in their local market. 
and literally make EXP the back end for that business, reduce their E&O risk, give every single agent that they have the ability to earn equity and the ability to earn revenue share, the whole nine yards and healthcare. It really is a great company. Outside of the real estate space, as a stock investor, I like this model. I'm going to have to go look into this company more. I'm going to have to go read their annual report and look into it and see if it's something I want to dig into more. But let's talk about having your license as a real estate investor. Is that something you would recommend to a new investor? I get asked that all the time. They say, do I need my license to invest? You don't need your license to invest. But at the end of the day, it really has to come down to the amount of volume that you're going to do. Because most people don't realize and having your license is an investment itself. So you have to join at least Jersey. We join a real estate board. And then I, the way the MLS works in New Jersey, I am literally a member of five different MLSs. So it's literally costing me thousands of dollars a year just to have my license. So if I'm not getting a return on that for me personally, by doing a certain amount of deals, what am I out there doing? Am I better off working with a bunch of agents instead of being competition to them to actually get the deal? Unless you're doing two to three deals a year, in a particular market, then it doesn't make sense for someone to get their license. What's the point? Because with technology today, with all the websites that are out there with, that all get the same feeds from the MLSs, sometimes it's like you know stuff pops up on certain websites quicker than it does that it would get emailed from the MLS from an agent. Yes, but why bother? But I mean, speed is the answer. And then there's so many things that are going on right now. We could talk about wholesalers, and I don't have very high respect for wholesalers. I think they're the kind of the used car salesman of the real estate investing world. But there's so many properties now that are being sold, if you want to say off market, that you can't even compete with. So being an investor friendly agent, like you said, there's not really many of them. So somebody that's listening to the show as an investor, what should they look for in an investor friendly agent? Well, it's kind of funny because when I was out there first doing this, there really was no one. And now I literally get phone calls from people like, let's say from bigger pockets or wherever, like, oh, I want to be just like you. And I want to work with real estate investors and selling property. Like, can you give me any advice? My advice is always the same thing. And it's this, don't do it. And they're like, what do you mean don't do it? And I'm just like, how many properties do you own? How long have you been a real estate investor for? And like, I don't own any properties, but I want to work with investors. And I'm just like, how can you guide someone on a real estate investment when you've never actually done it yourself? And there are are now a lot of, quote unquote, investor-friendly realtors that are out there, but they just don't own property. And I think at the end of the day, anyone can sell someone a house, right? And anyone can run numbers. But what's going to happen after the sale, okay? And it's, if you want to say the aspect of helping someone along with a tenant situation, understanding the law because you've been working in and you've been investing in that space for such a long period of time, that really differentiates the good investor-friendly agent versus someone who will just run out there and, and find them a house. I mean, I see people on Facebook right now saying, oh, let me help you invest and everything else like that. And then just like, oh, and I'm buying my first property myself. And I'm like, oh my God. And you honestly think that you should be helping others invest. It's crazy. You go through real estate school and my brother's going through real estate school right now. And my girlfriend did before that. And she's funny. She's like, we covered real estate investing in one chapter, one chapter and one paragraph in one chapter. She was basically four sentences. So suddenly you can just get a real estate license and then go sell someone a million dollar investment. You understand stocks. What do you have to do to sell someone a dollar stock? You have to get a series seven, series 63, all these different things, and you have to take crazy freaking tests to prove that you understand 
right? What it is that you're doing and the fiduciary responsibility. Yet, as a real estate agent, you just go out to get your license, 75 hours, whatever it is, and now suddenly you're walking someone around X community saying, yeah, this is a good investment. So I would really ask and try to find out someone's experience long-term and going beyond just this boom that we've been having since 2010. There are just so many people right now that are just out there riding a wave. They haven't been through a downturn. I've mentioned a couple of times here on the show that I'm writing a book right now, and it's about long distance real estate investing. And a big component of that is finding an investor friendly real estate agent. And I make it very clear that they need to be an investor themselves. And I think a lot of people want an investor friendly agent, but they don't want to see them as competition. But I actually see, like you said, having someone that's actually investing in the properties as more of a benefit than competition. And they need to be actually an active investor, not just saying they're investor friendly. Correct. I would say for me, and people have literally asked me that question, well, how do I know that you're not going to just keep everything for yourself? And you have to understand at this point, I've been at it for more than 20 years. I am so selective as to what it is that I will go after. I want crap. Like I want the worst house in the best area, right? I want to take on a project that would scare the living daylights out of most investors. So we have a project going on in South Orange, New Jersey right now that we paid 560 for it. And we're putting more than a quarter of a million dollars into it, completely gutting it, underpinning a foundation. We're doing things to it like literally everything will be new by the time that we're done with this house outside of the shell. And most real estate investors would never take on a project like that. And that's what I like to do because I want to go in there. I want to make sure that I don't have to worry about capital expenditures for 20 years. I want to make sure that the plumbing is done right. Everything is separated and I can sleep at night knowing that I'm not going to get a phone call that something's dripping. I can go and designate the materials that we're going to use that I know are going to last longer, do my best to tenor proof every single way I can, make sure that property can stand up long-term. And it goes back to having an abundance mindset, right? I mean, there's plenty of deals for everyone. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's what most people don't realize. It's like, give me a break. There's so much opportunity out there. Although I will say right now is at this point in history, it is the lowest amount of inventory I've ever come across in my life. It's a tough market, but there's still enough, right? Yes, there is still enough. And people get hung up over one deal. You can't get hung up over one deal. Absolutely. I agree. Darren, as we wrap up the show, tell the audience where they can go to connect with you, learn more about all the things you got going on. If you want to email me, my email address is reiagentnyc at gmail.com. Literally stands for a real estate investing agent in New York City at gmail.com. You can also find me at darrensager.exprealty.careers. All my information is there as well. Or you can also hit me up on Bigger Pockets. Just Google search for Darren Sager Bigger Pockets and my profile will come up there as well. Awesome. I'll be sure to put links to all of that in the show notes so everybody listening today can go connect with you there. Darren, thanks so much for coming on the show. Robert, really, this was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for having me. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.